Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Biotech Podcast, where we illuminate life science career opportunities outside of academia through the experiences of those who have been there before. For updates about upcoming guests, follow us on social media and visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. This episode is part of the Boston Biotech Series, produced in collaboration with the Professional Development and Career Office at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. In this series, we talk with alumni who work in the Boston biotech ecosystem. If you are a Hopkins student, we encourage you to join the online Boston biotech community on the OneHop platform to connect with the podcast guests, as well as other JHU alumni who work in Boston. You can find the link on our website at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com or in the show notes. My name is Jenna Glatzer, and I'm joined here with my co-host. I'm Joe Barrielli. Our guest today is Dr. Michelle Olds. Michelle is the director and head of cell therapy at Obsidian Therapeutics. Obsidian is a privately held biotech company based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, with a focus on developing cutting-edge cell therapies for a range of indications in oncology. Prior to joining Obsidian, Michelle held several R&D positions in both small and large biotech companies, focusing on drug discovery for immunological applications. Michelle completed her PhD from the Cellular and Molecular Medicine Program at Johns Hopkins Medicine, and later went on to complete postdoctoral positions at both Hopkins and Yale, studying B-cell activation and models of lupus. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, first, can you tell us a little bit about your role at Obsidian and what Obsidian does? Sure. And I've, I've actually been at Obsidian for five and a half years now. So I started at Obsidian kind of as, a, as a bench scientist uh, because it's a very sm- it was a very small company. So there were 10 of us that, that started, were getting the labs going, getting the project started all at once. And the core technology for Obsidian Therapeutics has been the ability to regulate pro- the expression of proteins at the protein level. So we have what's called, uh, they're called uh, drug responsive domains, where we can regulate the expression of protein proteins using a exogenous ligands, which are FDA approved small molecule drugs. Uh, so rather than regulating gene expression, we're actually regulating expression at the protein level. And what the destabilizing domain is doing, or we used to call it destabilizing domain. So what the we now call drug responsive domain is doing is it's kind of a slightly unfolded domain that then is targeting the the protein, the protein of interest for degradation by the the proteasome and the ubiquitin proteasome pathway. Uh, so with that, uh, the key ability to regulate proteins, the first application that we were interested in applying it to that seemed like the kind of the killer app where it was needed was in, in cell cellular therapies. So at the time, you know, five years ago, uh, we were the first few approvals of what are called living drugs or cellular therapies were coming to the forefront, namely the CD19 CAR T ther- cellular therapies. So these were T cells engineered to express a receptor that recognizes the CD19 antigen on on B cells for the treatment of things like B cell lymphoma and acute lymphocytic leukemia in children. And uh, these cellular therapies, these living drugs have been really efficacious for those hematologic type of malignancies. And the challenges have really been getting them to work in solid tumor settings. So this is where kind of Obsidian came in, noticing that what uh, that we could make sort of supercharged cell therapies if we could add in things that would make these cell therapies more potent, such as 
cytokines. They were very potent. Uh, so I came in to lead the IL-12 program at the time. So IL-12 is a highly potent, but also very toxic uh, cytokine. So it's there's a lot of, even before Obsidian started working on it, uh, really uh, within the space of immuno oncology, uh, even in people working on, say, cancer vaccines. Uh, IL-12 is kind of a highly desirable target that you would deploy to be able to enhance uh, immune response to cancer antigens. And it had been tried in the clinic before, but it is it is very toxic and leads to and can lead to you know pretty severe adverse events and and even death actually in a couple of cases. Uh, so it's the type of cytokine that is really very potent and powerful, but needs to be tightly regulated, turned on and only when you need it, and turned off uh, when you don't need it on. So that's where you know Obsidian came in saying that we could in supercharged cell therapies by providing an ability to regulate really potent molecules such as IL-12. So moving on from there, we've got a partnership with Bristol-Myers-Squibb to develop IL-12 and also CD40 ligand in their proprietary cell therapy systems. Uh, and then Obsidian moved on to develop our own internal programs, which are not CAR-T therapies. but And so we a couple of years ago, decided to focus on tumor infiltrating lymphocytes or TIL therapies as as cell-based therapy. The technology is it's super interesting. Uh, and I think that one of the issues, and you sort of alluded to it, is that many of these current cell therapies are indicated for liquid tumors and hematologic malignancies. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but as you had mentioned, obsidian is focused on tumor infiltrating lymphocytes. So can you just talk about uh, sort of how those two modalities are different and, and what's the importance of tumor infiltrating lymphocytes uh, in both um, cancer pathology and in the setting of cell therapy? Yeah, for sure. So yeah, so two years ago, Obsidian changed its focus when we were developing our own internal programs to, to focus on tumor infiltrating lymphocytes as a source of cell therapies. And we made that decision for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is the the benefit of TIL therapies and that we can take advantage of their polyclonal nature. Uh, so we can really be antigen agnostic in terms of what tumor antigens the, the TIL, the tumor infiltrating lymphocytes are recognizing within the cancer. So the, that's the, what would how TIL therapy would differ from say an engineered CAR-T uh, in a couple of ways. First, the CAR-Ts and also there's other companies out there that are working on engineered, what's called an engineered TCR where you can engineer in a specific specificity where the TCR is the one that has a peptide binding. So it can recognize internal antigens of the cell, present those to MHC for MHC recognition. And so what's different between TIL therapy and either engineered TCRs or CAR-T therapies is that the engineered TCR and the engineered CAR-Ts are usually engineered from peripheral blood of the patient. Uh, so that is a lot easier in terms of manufacturing. There's a lot of, you know, kind of more access to T cells in the periphery and the peripheral blood, and obviously easy access to being able to just simply do a blood draw and engineer the patient's cells in that way. Uh, in contrast, the TIL therapies, you were actually have to then uh, excise the tumor, sort of in what would be a normal surgical procedure for solid tumors, and then expand these tumor infiltrating lymphocytes. So the the T cells 
and NK cells and other lymphocytes that have entered into the, the tumor, those are the cells that then you expand in the lab. And usually the till therapy process is expanding those tills with high dose IL-2, which is a you know, high or high level of IL-2 in the tissue culture that kind of rejuvenates the tills. And it's IL-2 is a expansion factor for T cells. So you're really driving this um, high level of expansion of the till ex vivo, giving them a chance to sort of revitalize a bit and then infuse the till back into the patient. Uh, the kind of challenge of that, I think, is obvious in terms of a higher manufacturing challenge of being able to have access to that tumor material um, and, and making sure that the expansion goes well enough uh, to infuse back into the patient. The advantages then of the TIL are that, as I mentioned, they're, they're a polyclonal cell population. So unlike the CAR T and TCR, where you're targeting a single antigen, the, the TIL is rather antigen agnostic. It would be targeting any uh, cancer-associated antigen. Some of those would be shared, like when you think of melanoma, there's MERT1, GP100, tyrosinase, uh, certain shared tumor antigens like that. They can also be mutated cancer antigens uh, that have potentially be more specific to that particular patient. And it's polyclonal, so you could be targeting a lot of these different antigens at one time, and you can be kind of rather agnostic about what those are. Uh, so you're taking advantage of that polyclonal nature of the till and not having to engineer in a specific specificity. The other potential advantage, which I think uh, probably there's still, the jury is a bit out on this, but uh, the advantage of till therapy is that they've already gotten to the tumor. So I think there's still some understanding on the biology side of what allows a cell therapy to then traffic to the tumor and have activity there. The TIL has the advantage that they've already done it once. So hopefully in our manufacturing process, we keep that similar state of the cell that it's able to you know, traffic back to the tumor and have activity where it's needed. Whereas in CAR-TCR and ETCR therapies, to date, they're still having challenges in getting activity in a solid tumor setting for various reasons. One of them could be that, you know, trafficking challenge. Uh, in contrast, till therapies have demonstrated efficacy in uh, melanoma and other solid tumors already. Yeah, I, I really like how you've spelled out some of the advantages and disadvantages to, to each platform. So it, it, I'm sure it depends a lot on the heterogeneity of the, the tumor immune environment and it seems like this is a therapy used in an autologous setting. And we know that the future of CAR-T therapies um, might, uh, might be that you could actually create an allogeneic cell therapy whereby the, the cells that you expand uh, and engineer don't necessarily come from the patient. So mm -hmm. do, do you think that uh, TIL therapies will always be autologous, or do you think that there's a potential for uh, a sort of allogeneic till therapy? <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question and something we sort of uh, discussed a little bit in-house. Um, my uh, personal opinion is, I mean, I, first, maybe we should explain that the, the mm -hmm. advantage of an allogeneic therapy, right, is that because it, it increases the ease of your manufacturing, right? If you can take a healthy donor blood, engineer it, uh, have a kind of batch effect where you are able to, to, to qualify and validate that drug product and then 
deliver it to multiple different patients. It also increases the speed of access. So for certain cancers like uh, uh, acute myelogenous leukemia, AML, those patients can progress in their disease really rapidly uh, and too quickly in that they don't have time for their own cells to be engineered and to be delivered back as a product. So that's where allogeneic therapies would really shine is, is being able to be rapidly delivered to a patient like that, uh, that with an aggressive disease course. Uh, I mean, we, of course, at Obsidian are also <laughs> keeping our eye on that field, and we think we could provide benefits with our regulation technology in that uh, space as well. Um, the there are challenges still to be had, as you're probably aware, in the allogeneic space. Um, and it's not only uh, uh, other donor cells that are, can be engineered, but people are working on making allogeneic th uh, cell therapies with iPSC-derived cells, for example. So there's multiple sources where people could make allogeneic therapies. To date, there haven't been you know, clinical successes yet. So there's a challenge of those products are either rejected by the immune system of the patient receiving them, and they have to be, you know, heavily edited and engineered. Um, or, you know, there's the risk, which I don't think has been seen in the clinic yet, but there's the, the risk that you could have a graft-versus-host disease type of setup when you have that allogeneic uh, setting and as opposed to autologous setting. Uh, so while there's great advantages, there's also challenges still to be overcome. And that's part of why we're still focused on TIL therapies is something that there's still this niche for TIL therapies where we have been seeing, or at least the community, right, of people that work on TIL therapies, TIL therapies have shown demonstrated success in solid tumors, and we're trying to enhance them and have uh, provide greater benefit to, to more patients with TIL therapies, sort of while we're keeping an eye on the allogeneic field that still needs to sort of come to fruition. I think that was a really fantastic explanation and also a great segue. Um, I want to circle back sort of to, you know, your early career. And you mentioned, you know, doing um, your PhD work at Hopkins and doing your postdoctoral work in B-cell biology. Um, but could you go back even further? Were you always interested in science? Did you always know you wanted to go for a PhD? Oh, yeah, I was always interested in science. I think it was my kind of I mean, I always love school, but I think my first love in terms of all of the subjects in school was really science. I think from a young age, the classes, the science classes were just always so fascinating in terms of thinking about how things work, why just <laughs> how molecules come together and then how, how cells work. And so I mean, I, I, and I loved all of them, particularly chemistry and biology, but I think biology was particularly fascinating when you look at the complexity of the cells and all the different molecules that have to come together to help a cell work. And then also to build up then to the anatomy and physiology of a whole organism. Uh, so that has always, somehow those biology classes were always the one that drew my attention the most. And I always got the best grades in those classes because I was so interested and intrigued and Therefore, yeah, I, I feel like I don't have necessarily the best memory and retention of information as some other people out there, definitely not for history, but for biology, I could just remember it because I was so fascinated by it. Yeah. And thinking about your PhD work, you, you studied a group of enzymes called peptidyl arginine deaminases. Right. And, um, or, or PADS. Mm -hmm. And 
you, after your postdocs, uh, worked at Biogen for a bit, and, and then you actually came back to work at a company, uh, Padlock, mm-hmm. that was studying ways to drug those pads. And I think, to, to preface this, sometimes we, we do work in our PhD, and we go off into a postdoc or industry, and, and we do something different, and whatever work we did in our PhD kind of gets left behind, and it's more about what we learned along the way. But you actually were able to apply what you learned and what you studied in your PhD afterwards, and, and it wasn't directly afterwards, but but it was you know some time. So how did you sort of come back to um, studying that group of enzymes, and uh, and and how do you feel like your PhD work really prepared you for that role? Right. Uh, I guess I could say a couple of things about that. The first is that so right my my. PhD work, my postdoc work, and then my time at Biogen was all related to autoimmune disease research. So I was growing in my knowledge and skills in different areas. So the the postdoc work was with Anthony Rosen, who was the was at the time he was the head of the division of rheumatology. I think now he's a dean right, at the school, but uh, you know very focused on human disease, studying human disease and 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 co- complicated or systemic autoimmune diseases uh and then but i did not get any animal modeling type of experience so i didn't get your sort of hardcore immunology mouse modeling type of training in my phd uh it was very focused on human immunology which was a great experience so to 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 then move on in my career as an immunologist i kind of strategically took a position with Mark Slomchik at Yale doing a also in the autoimmune disease field, but really working with animal models and building that skills, which is really a different skill set of how do you work with animal mouse models for immunology, cell transfers, genetic uh, transgenics and knockouts and, and all of that. It's a really different way of thinking and of designing experiments. And so then having built those two skill sets of understanding human immunology and then understanding uh, mouse modeling, that's, it was those two skill sets that helped me get the job at Biogen. So at Biogen at the time, they were looking for someone with a, a, you know, B-cell immunology background. And, you know, I knew that they were later on when they told me why they picked me as opposed to other candidates that they had, because they had candidates, you know, that had say published in the top journals that, you know, cell science, nature, immunity, coming from really big immunology labs at, at Harvard uh, and very talented scientists uh, that kind of only had the mouse modeling background. So what my hiring manager liked about me, he told me later on, was that I also knew the messy side of human immunology and the challenges there so that m- maybe I would get less discouraged, right, when I sort of come into drug development side, which has its own challenges and thinking about how are we going to turn these ideas, this knowledge of biology or immunology, how are we going to turn that pathway knowledge into a drug, which is a whole nother challenge and way of thinking. Uh, So then coming out of Biogen and then into to Padlock, the way that that happened was really Biogen had layoffs in 20, 2015, where they just you know deprioritized all of their work in autoimmune disease and in fibrosis. Uh, 
And, and so then I was on the job market. It wasn't something I would have necessarily had done on my own. At the time, I was probably kind of afraid of the prospect of having to look for another job and getting laid off. But it ended up being, you know, actually a really good uh, thing that happened in terms of my career because it this move from a larger company. I mean, Biogen's not big pharma, but it's a rather large biotech. And so that move from a large company to a small company has a lot of differences that I'm sure we can talk about later. Uh, but then being on the job market, that's where I noticed the importance really of your connections and networking in terms of finding new jobs and then tapping into what your strengths are, right? And people are looking for your particular skill set and knowledge that you've built in your career. So the padlock position was open for me and just seemed like the right, perfect fit for my background in terms of I had that industry experience at the time, mouse modeling, in human immunology. I had actually worked on the peptidyl arginine deaminases previously. So they were referencing my key paper in their work and their presentations with investors. So, uh, and the way I found out about that job was purely networking. So my PhD colleague, um, Erica Dara was, I had worked closely with her during my graduate studies and she's now still at Hopkins as a professor, right? Or, and, uh, and she was on the board of Padlock Therapeutics, their scientific, advi scientific advisory board. So I had sent an email out to all of my friends and colleagues. I just got laid off. I'm looking for a new position. Let me know if you know of anything. And Erica saw that and she was like, I have the perfect position for you. Padlock's hiring. <laughs> so that's really how that happened was just really that internal networking. Um, and then ultimately the other connections then that benefited that was when I started interviewing for that position. There's just such a great network within Cambridge, where uh, people, a lot of people have left Biogen for various reasons and gone on to other small companies. And the the CEO at Padlock at the time was a former head of research at Biogen. We did not overlap at all. Uh, so his name is Mike, Mike Gilman. We didn't overlap at all, but I knew people who knew him from Biogen and could we could sort of speak to each other. And so there's a lot of kind of networking that happens in that way when you're interviewing and people sort of uh, then confirming that and checking your references and and sort of validating that, yeah, you're a quality scientist and then that helps you land the job as well. Yeah. I mean, Biogen's been such a stalwart in, you know, the Boston biotech ecosystem, biotech in generally. So right. just for, for the former Biogen network, I'm sure is, is very full. Yes. It's very useful to be a former Biogen person. <laughs> Yeah. Um, just a quick follow-up. So you mentioned about working on kind of the messy side of biology and working with like human immunology and also coming from a neuro background, I can appreciate that on the sheer level of complexity that translating uh, different mouse models to human models of disease and human disease, how complicated that can be. But in terms of immunology, what are some of the major challenges with translation of mouse models of autoimmune diseases in translating it into human uh, drugs? Yeah, I mean, I think when we always talk about mouse models, <laughs> that none of the models are ever, they're none of them are really good. So they're each giving you kind of a piece of the picture and then you have to 
be very strategic about which model you're using to test a particular mechanism or particular pathways that you're interested in. Uh, but we always say that none of them are really good, good models. We still use them, of course, on in the industry setting because they're beneficial to particularly address questions as kind of PKPD or pharma, pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics of, of drugs. Uh, and they're really good validation for small molecules, biologics, and, and we even use them for cell therapies. But we do take the data from them with a grain of salt. I mean, if you get a positive result in an animal model, that's great. But uh, a lot of positive data from animal models has still had failed results in, in clinical trials, uh, really uh, across the board. So there's, I think there has been in my career, even a growing movement to, in some cases, fast track and even bypass animal models. And sometimes there's animal models where you you can't actually directly set it up because say there's a human protein that you're interested in in targeting and the mouse version there's no such thing as that protein in a mouse so that can happen as well and then and then people really have to bypass the mouse system and go into something like sino models you know non-human primate studies which i did see a program like that happen at biogen and then in that setting too in terms of translating animal models models into the clinic you sometimes you fast track the model readout. And instead of prioritizing an efficacy readout, which would be phenomenal, right? If you see uh, efficacy results uh, in the animal model, that's the best case scenario. But in the absence of having a really good animal model, what you can get out of the animal models are more just being able to target the, ensuring that you're hitting the target in the pathway. So it's sort of validation that the their drug exposure is high enough that you can the, hit the pathway and they are having activity in vivo, but uh, and there's some sort of clinical correlate and biomarker, right, that you would have of clinical activity that then you could take that and translate that into clinical results uh, and also get kind of faster, say, phase one clinical data on movement of a biomarker for uh hitting the drug target rather than a whole efficacy biomarker. Yeah. So it seems like that it, it was great that you had both of those experiences in, in both the, the drug development side and, and the human immunology and, and the mouse model, as you'd mentioned. Uh, I, I think now we want to move to sort of talking about how you built up your career and uh, you've given us, you know, really nice overview. Um, I think the first piece that I want to hit on is is that initial moment when you decided to leave academia. What was that like for you? Was was it a difficult decision? And how are you weighing out that decision in terms of either going into industry or possibly running your own lab? Mm -hmm. Yeah, for me at the time that I made the decision, it was not a difficult decision. I think it took some time for me to get there in the sense of when I was in my graduate studies, I didn't know yet which path I would want to take. And that's part of why I decided to go the postdoc route to understand more what the academic path would be like at the time. That being said, I was sort of in the midst of the recession. <laughs> it was back in uh, in the early 2000s. So there wouldn't have really been as many opportunities for someone straight out of grad school to go into industry. The environment's completely different now. I mean, I've hired a number of PhDs without a postdoc, and many companies are doing that that right now. Uh, so going into the postdoc gave me more time to sort of weigh those options to gain that additional skill set that actually 
then ultimately helped me get land that first job at, at Biogen. And so the reason why the decision to go into industry, though, was not difficult for me at the time was that what I started to self-reflect on the aspects of science that I enjoyed doing the most. So I always, as I said, from a childhood, always loved and was fascinated by science, even basic biology. What I noticed for my career in graduate school and in my postdoc was that the actual science that I enjoyed having hands-on work and spending my own time and getting very busy with my hands in the lab with were more of these applied questions. So as you can tell, I chose the program Cellular Molecular Medicine, studying autoimmune disease, because I felt that connection with, I have you know some family history of autoimmunity in, in my family, so I had that direct connection. Then moving into the, the postdoc, the types of projects that I was selecting were projects where my PhD mentor or my postdoc mentor had collaborations with other industries and we were testing. So we were testing drug molecules in our mouse models, for example. And that was kind of a project that I gravitated to because it was more applied in a certain way. So noticing that observation in myself and what stoked my most, most of my interests, uh, kind of made it a natural fit to move into industry where things would be more applied and closer to the patient. The second aspect of what I was reflecting, self-reflecting on was that the types of projects that I enjoy the most are ones that involve collaboration and involve, you know, teamwork, a lot of different players involved. I'm not the type of person that necessarily felt that I needed to be at you know, the sole player, you know, individual contributor driving all the science and independently. I prefer and really enjoy the teamwork aspect where we're working together and drawing on expertise of lots of different people. And you're taking knowledge and expertise from, from different places to build a successful program that wouldn't be possible with only a single person. Right. So you really touched on, you know, kind of your own self-motivations and understanding, you know, yourself and what, is really important to you as a way to decide what path to go on and also what your where your talents really are. And I'm wondering, so now that you've led a number of teams across you know, Biogen and now at Obsidian and being a director and having people under you, how do you sort of select who is going to make a really good team, who's going to contribute? How do you view your colleagues as a, from a manager's perspective and setting them up for success and identifying their own strengths for right. teamwork. Yeah. yeah that, that's a good question. I mean, first and foremost, of course, the person has to be smart and competent and have demonstrated success in their projects in the past <clears throat> to be able to, you know, if we're interviewing a candidate, <clears throat> we sort of drill down into the specifics of the work that we're doing and making sure that the person who's interviewing actually understands the work that you're, that they did and understanding which aspects of the work that they did. So we like to get very detailed and specific and of course, you know, looking at their papers and, and their achievements, <clears throat> but that's not the only factor. So that's, that's a key and important necessity. <laughs> the, the second aspect on the industry side is looking to the, the, 
the personality and the motivations of the the person. Is this someone also that values the teamwork, values uh, you know collaboration, working with other people? Because in the industry setting, that is so very important. Um, so you can have really excellent scientists that if they're not able to work with other people, uh, the team can kind of collapse and fall apart and you won't ultimately make progress in, in your projects. So we also, when we're interviewing, ask a lot of different behavioral and motivational types of questions too, to understand what drives people uh, and and how, how, how are they when they're working with other people. So some of those things that you mentioned that you look for in, in good people, the ability to, uh, you know, show what, what they've done and, and expand upon that work. And, uh, it's, it seems like those are also qualities that are necessary for kind of rising through the organizational hierarchy. And, and you, you mentioned that at Obsidian, you started out as a bench scientist, but now you're the, the head of cell therapies at Obsidian. So, so in addition to the qualities that you need to actually get the job, what sort of qualities do you need to exude in order to prove that, that you can uh, run that team and, and run programs? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And I think it there could be different answers in different companies and, and different cultures. And the culture at my company, uh, I have always, in and I had a team early on, although I was at the bench, I always had people reporting with me and was also leading this cross-functional project, right? Where even people not reporting directly to me, working with other molecular biologists, people on the in vivo team or at Biogen working with chemists. Uh, so I think what helped me in rising to the position that I am in is really that focus on developing the people on the team, letting them shine in their skills, uh, especially as you rise in your career and I get further and further away from the bench, I'm not going to be the expert in the latest technology. I don't have hands-on experience, right? Say with transcriptional profiling myself. So I would need to hire someone that has that experience that can generate those type of data sets if that's what we need for the project. But what my sort of skill set is, or could call it sort of different people have different superpowers, but the skill set of being able to uh, hire the right people and to give the people the opportunities that they need for their growth and development and so, so that they'll shine as a team. And when the team works well, then the, and, and if you're leading the team and the team is working well, then that's what allows your career to grow because people see that you can be a leader of people of people and projects. And you mentioned that going from you know working at Biogen, going from a much larger biotech firm to now where you're at a smaller firm, you mentioned that there are some differences and you know, probably not only culture and just size and reporting structure, but I'm wondering if you could touch on more of those differences that might draw someone to work for like a larger biotech or even a larger pharma company versus a smaller biotech environment. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I, I think this is also a case where people need to be self-reflective about what what motivates them, what drives them, what keeps them interested, because there are these differences between the big companies and the small companies. So one of the main differences is coming into to Biogen. As I said, it's not a large pharma, it's more of a large biotech. The department that I joined was, there were about 40 people. So 20 p- 
PhD scientists. And that means that in each of us, we're running one to three programs at a time. So you end up having a lot of balls in the air and, and you're working on a lot of different types of projects at the same time in the kind of role that I was in. So I was leading cross-functional project team at the time, as I, as I mentioned with, with chemists and molecular biologists and people in other departments. What was nice about that was in a sense of being in a big department like that, there's with so many different projects going on, it still felt a little bit like I was still at Yale or at Hopkins or at a Harvard where you're going to seminar presentations. I mean, we also, we would invite in guest speakers, which we'll also do at small companies. You can invite in academics to give talks. Your departmental meetings felt also like a academic departmental meeting in a sense where you're learning about different projects as different students or postdocs are presenting uh, and, and different programs. So in a, a sense, you feel like you're still very much involved in keeping up to speed with the whole field of immunology, or at least in autoimmunity, as we're focused on that at Biogen, uh, which was nice for someone who's very interested in, and intrigued in, in all different areas and in different pathways. At the same time, you're kind of have a lot of balls in the air. And so unlike grad school or postdoc, uh, you need to progress programs quickly, make fast decisions. You don't have the luxury of drilling down into the details and the specifics. And it can sometimes feel like you're just getting a cursory overview of the knowledge that you might need want to have in your particular project, just by necessity of, of speed. Uh, and, and, and so that's kind of the trade-off of being at a big company. Moving from there then into the smaller biotech, by necessity, it's small, there's less projects. From the outset, the uh, the lead management team, the leadership team, has already decided and focused. Say, Padlock Therapeutics. We are going to focus on peptidyl aminases. This is the only protein we're working on at this whole company, which means now you actually have the luxury of drilling down again and understanding mechanisms and which peptidyl arginine, uh, which pad protein two or four are we going to target, and and kind of get back. So that felt a little bit like going back to a postdoc where you have sort of some luxury of drilling in and, and focusing. The other thing with a small company like that is, or like Obsidian right now is because you're, you, you're small and focused, you can also charge ahead and move faster. So you take bigger risks. Uh, you're working in, in less different areas. So you're willing to move a program, progress a program through a development pipeline much faster because it's really kind of up or out. You know, you're going to succeed with this idea that you're trying to prove and you're going to attack it from every single angle. So you're less likely to kill a program quickly, like is what would happen at a larger company. At a larger company, you have 40 projects you're picking from or more. So you're looking to, for any reason, to stop working on something. Whereas at a smaller company where you're already focused on a few targets, you're the, the focus can be, I mean, of course you need to have killer experiments where you stop programs if you need to. You don't want to be wasting time that way either. Uh, but there's sort of more of a drive to say at Obsidian Therapeutics, like our regulation technology, there's more of a drive to 
really push, pull out all the stops, right, to get the technology to work. You're not going to give up on it as quickly as you might at a larger company that has a lot more projects going on. And the risk is therefore spread out at a, at a larger company. It sounds like there's a higher tolerance. Mm. A much higher tolerance for risk at a small company, for sure, because you have, uh, you know, the investors gave you money to do a certain type of work and you're going to do everything you can to show whether or not you can get it to work or not, because yeah. that's sort of the company depends on it. So this is the Boston Biotech series and and we are highlighting opportunities, uh, you know, in Boston, which is the the largest uh, biotech hub in, in the country, really, and you've seen sort of an evolution, I'm sure, since your time uh, starting at Biogen in, in the Boston Biotech Hub. What sort of impact has it had on your um, ability to find these jobs? I, I think you articulated very well how important your network was mm-hmm. in in finding the padlock job, and I'm sure the Obsidian job. But but you know it. In a situation where uh, a layoff happens, which is not uncommon uh, in, in biotech, um, was there some comfort that that being in Boston, uh, just the wealth of, of companies working on interesting technologies would allow you to find uh, uh, something that, that fit your intellectual interest? Oh, definitely. I think that's a major selling point of the Boston area. And there's, I mean, there's a few other areas around the country that are like that. I think my impression is that Boston is particularly large area and growth of companies for biotech. So the way I, I kind of describe it as when you're in the Boston biotech community, it can be like a game of musical chairs where if you get laid off, there's still job security because there are so many other chairs he found. Um, so then getting laid off there is you don't have to uproot your whole family and, and move to a different place in the country. I mean, people will do that for different job opportunities and particular career growth that they would want. Uh, but there, there is a certain level of job security, even just staying in Boston. Uh, and in the, the network certainly helps. And I think that when we talk about networking, of course, it can be networking across the country as well, because people do move outside of Cambridge into other great uh, communities for biotech with in the network in, in Boston, there's always, or at least right now, very rapid startups forming here and there. So get, get, we get recruiter calls all the time where people are trying to convince you to leave where you currently are to move into a a new company. So it does give a sense of of job security in that sense. And that uh, where you are, isn't satisfying in some way there's there's other other places to go yeah so you mentioned being in this really exciting environment and you know obviously working for a very exciting company right now but what i guess beyond what you're doing at obsidian um and being in this really exciting growth opportunity in boston what are some of the new kind of areas of research areas of technology that you're really excited about right now well, gene editing is an exciting technology that a lot of companies are using to develop therapeutics in the gene therapy space as well as in the cell therapy space. So companies making allogeneic cell therapies, as we were discussing earlier, 
uh, are often using different gene editing technologies to to generate those uh, allogeneic cells that'll be more well uh, tolerated by the immune system, less likely to cause GVHD. Uh, so, as I discussed earlier, we're not in that in that space right now at at Obsidian with cell therapies. Uh, although we are tracking the field um, in that area, we're also uh, you know tracking the field for for possible future targets that we would want to edit out of our tills to en enhance our, our tills for our internal programs. Uh, what we are doing in the gene editing space is we have a collaboration with with Vertex where we're actually helping them to regulate uh, their gene editing protein for use in uh, undisclosed gene therapy indications that they that they have in their company at Vertex. Thank you so much. This was incredibly interesting and, and highly technical, and, and we really enjoy that. Um, and we've enjoyed learning about you and, and your career progression, as well as some of the science going on at Obsidian. Yeah, thank you very much for inviting me. It was a pleasure to speak with you, and uh, hopefully, there's some some helpful advice that other people can take away as they're planning their careers. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us. Don't forget to follow the Hopkins Biotech Podcast on social media at Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter for updates about upcoming guests, and visit us at HopkinsBiotechPodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. I'm Joe Varelli. I'm Jenna Glatzer. Thank you for listening.